This is GSAP Conversations from the Graduate School of Architecture, Planning and Preservation at Columbia University in New York City. I'm Dina Malandraus. Thanks for listening. I'm James Graham, Director of Publications at Columbia GSAP and the school's imprint, Columbia Books on Architecture and the City. During the opening days of the 2017 Chicago Architecture Biennial, Columbia GSAP co-hosted the conference Making Books Now with biennial curators Sharon Johnson and Mark Lee. We invited biennial participants who have deliberately explored bookmaking in various ways as means to produce and express architectural thought. The event was structured as a series of conversations in which the architects were asked not to present their own work, but instead to engage and respond to one another's recent publications. This podcast is one in a series of six of these exchanges recorded at the Chicago Cultural Center on September 15th, 2017. This episode is a conversation between David Benjamin of The Living, who has a monograph of architecture and research coming out later this year, and Ben Aranda of Aranda Lash, whose book Trace Elements was published this fall. Thank you. Thank you, Graham. I, I maybe wanted to pick up on what, what you were just saying, James, and talk about your, your most recent book and how I really appreciated the, the themes of ruin and brokenness and the kind of messiness of, of the architectural process. And a couple of things that I noted about it is that it, it, it seemed to pose more questions than it answered in, in the writing in particular and the pacing. It, it kind of posed to me some riddles and provocations. And I think it did two things pretty well that have already been brought up today. You know, James at the beginning said, you know, maybe books can help us slow down. And I think this was a good example of that. And then Mark Lee, a little bit earlier, said, you know, books reach a different part of your brain, you know, maybe than the other kind of digital information that we consume. And, you know, maybe one other quick observation is that, you know, along those lines, one very striking moment of the book was when you brought in one of a few different stories, you know, kind of narratives uh, and people to the book, and you, you had this great um, passage where, and I'm going to read it if that's okay in the this, in this spirit, of just a quote from it, but um, he said, Wilson Snowflake Bentley proved with a simple homemade camera that no two snowflakes are alike. He photographed over 6,000 specimens across a lifetime, standing in the cold, patiently waiting for snowflakes to fall. He died of pneumonia for this crusade. And I think, you know, that was, I mean, that's a, that's a striking little, you know, mini story. Yeah. But, I, but I also just wanted to note that the use of a kind of personal and striking and human story along with the process of design was, was really refreshing and appealing to me. Oh, thanks. Yeah, well, that, um, Wilson Bentley and there's, there's a number of other individuals, you know, deeply inspired us. Uh, I think they prove that human beings can make fundamental discoveries with, in very, with very simple tools. And, uh, you know, architecture is the discipline that uh, works, to, uh, works to do that. Uh, I mean, the, 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 what, what's interesting, I mean, even more maybe biographical, you know, this is about making books, this discussion. And I think with all architects, we have such a kind of personal relationship to books. We're definitely 
uh, you know, I can speak for myself, but I'm a Gen Xer, basically grew up distrustful of the television, hated advertising. I, I, I questioned power, and I think as an architect growing up in the 90s, I also loved books, and I, I think about what, what, what Mark had said about going to Vienna, to Walter Koenig, like every time, you know, we travel somewhere, I think architects, we go to a bookstore. I mean, and it's really sad here that in, in America, we're, we're, we're losing them. I mean, uh, I remember coming to Chicago 20 years ago, and I would go to the Prairie Avenue Bookshop, which was across the street, and it's, it's gone. You know, we had this amazing bookstore in New York City, Urban Center Books. And, you know, as a student, I, I went to William Stout's architectural bookstore uh, as a place of real, uh, a real learning I remember meeting Sarah Herta there. She, Sarah Herta worked at William Stout's bookstore. That's, that's where she partly you know, uh, learned and became fascinated with this discipline uh, to obviously great effect. And the first book that I bought as a student from William Stout's bookstore was a uh, pamphlet architecture. So flash forward 20 years, yeah, it was, it was uh, it, it's like this you know, amazing uh, dream come true to be able to, um, uh, to, to participate, really, in this, in this, like, way of learning. And I think, you know, I, I, I don't know if it's a generational thing, but certainly our generation still uses the book in, in the design process, whether it's as, you know, a stack on your desks, certainly the way we teach architecture, but the book remains relevant, and I think it, you know, for all of us, there's like a we have a personal connection to, to, to books. Do you have a personal connection to books? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and you know, I think I think it's interesting to consider these kind of books in in the design process. And I think, you know, obviously there are a lot of kinds of books, uh, a lot of kinds of architectural books, and some are ones that we have on our desks, you know, that are part of the design process, and you know. Even of those, there are some that we just need to look at to remind ourselves of the contents and the ideas, and others that we will actually like open up and look at for reference and inspiration and creativity. And, and so, yeah, I think the actual book being part of a design process is something that kind of comes second nature. And then there's another kind of related trajectory of making a book that could either be, you know, to capture a moment, which I think your pamphlet architecture did really well, and or to be on someone else's desk as part of their design process. And and I think your your book tooling, you know, from a few years ago now, did that really well. I mean, I think it was the kind of book that was on the desks of a lot of architecture students, and it was a kind of very tangible participant in the, in the design process for a lot of people. It captured a moment. And I think that's, that's one great thing that books can do, is they can have a certain generosity of like kind of giving yeah. to others in an open-ended way, not so much a declarative way of like, you know, this is what I know, uh, but more a way of like, have you ever thought of yeah. something like this process? Yeah, I thought it would be interesting to to talk about those books that are stacked up on students' desks. I mean, I remember, you know, what what led up to to this book 
was definitely a bunch of other books as, as a student kind of on our desk. And I wrote down a list because I wanted to see if just kind of how this, I mean, I haven't, you know, done this in 20 years, but like I, I was thinking about, I mean, the medium is the massage. Somebody mentioned it earlier, the Fiore McClellan, uh, McLuhan uh, collaboration. Kepish certainly was also mentioned in their systems research. I think definitely learning from Las Vegas, Delirious New York. I think all of the pamphlet architecture series, at least here in the U.S., were like a, a big touchstone as a, as a young student. And what those precipitated, all of those books during the 90s, during this kind of publication explosion, there were all these new possibilities in publications. We got SMLXL. We also got things like zone books, which were these incredible vehicles, very dense vehicles for, for capturing and, and projecting knowledge, but in a way that learned from these kind of highly tuned graphic experiments. Like, you know, you have to look at the medium as the massage as this extremely coercive way of delivering information. And that, that kind of lineage of, of, let's say, graphic coercion, by the time we were able to produce this book, a Pamphlet Architecture, we had all these constraints that were very refreshing. It had to be very short, it had to be black and white, and there had to be this kind of urgency to it. It's a pamphlet, it's like not meant to, it's not meant to be relevant uh, within a year or two. It was precisely those constraints that, you know, uh, really kind of maybe forced us to do what is very difficult as an architect, which is to uh, stop the design process and really put things down kind of clearly. I had a, maybe a, a way to, I wanted to ask you about your, your book. So just so people know, we, we, we had to read each other's books. And at, at the last minute, David asked me to look at the monograph that he's producing. And um, so the book that David read from us probably takes around 12 minutes to read. There's not a lot of words. And, and David sent his monograph to me on, uh, actually I was about to get on the plane on the way to come to Chicago. And it's a 640 page tome with all these essays and it's, it's incredibly like rich and deep. And, and so I needed, <laughs> I, you know, I actually didn't have uh, too much time to go through the whole thing, but I needed some instruction on, on what to read. And I was able to get through, I'm happy to say most of it. It's, there's a lot of obviously uh, pictures. But there's something that you talk about, which is this issue of uncertainty, and, and you talk about it really, really, really beautifully. And I, I wanted to really kind of get into it, because I think it really describes what's so novel about the way you work and, and about what the book is about. And I, maybe I, I thought I'd maybe start with a quote. So the night Trump was elected, there was a Republican strategist who was talking on TV, and I'll, I'll never forget it, he was actually, a, he was part of the Never Trump kind of movement. And, he, and there was this guy, uh, Mike Murphy, and he said, tonight, data died. So moving forward from that moment on, you know, information, data could never be uh, trusted. You wrote in, in your book, you, talked, you talk a lot about biological computing. You talk a lot about information. You talk about lot, a lot about how to look at things with this kind of skepticism that I think is really uh, refreshing. And I'm just gonna read a, a quote as well. And I want you to maybe explain to all of us how we can design with uncertainty, because I think that's what you're doing. So you say, this biological outlook offers an important counterpoint to the rhetoric of efficiency that has long been implied in computational thought. The abstraction of data 
economies, ecologies, and life itself, which is always latent within an algorithmic outlook on the world, lends itself to a strain of managerial thinking, which when left unchecked, runs the risk of neutralizing difference. So case in point, the artificial intelligence's quote unquote white guy problem, or subsuming individuality into corporate logics, the result of so much contemporary internet-based sociality, end quote. I think that's a really striking paragraph that that basically kind of captures this strange moment that we're in right now, where we can't really trust everything uh, or even understand everything that we're receiving, but somehow you seem to be able to articulate a way of uh, using this uncertainty as a way to design. Yeah, I, I, I think that's right. And that's, that's a good kind of summary of some of the things that we were thinking about in the book. And, you know, maybe it's just to make one first kind of zoomed out note. It's, it was kind of the act of making this book that led to that kind of reflection and that kind of writing. Um, and that kind of pulling together these different threads of projects and ideas and designs into a, more of an outlook to yes. describe something like a biological outlook. And it also took a certain kind of uh, right moment for us to do that. You know, and a few other people on, on this stage who talked earlier were talking about the moment to kind of reflect on work and make it into a book. And so this is something that had been part of our projects, and we've been kind of exploring it in different ways, but this was the moment to kind of write it down and kind of stake a claim to it. Yeah. And, and the idea, you know, I think as the passage you were, you were describing kind of uh, outlines is that, you know, in contrast to a lot of recent use of computation, which could maybe be described as trying to predict, like in elections, you know, for example, trying to have, like, what is the data? How can we predict some, like, a single outcome? I mean, meaning who's going to win the election? Um, So there's, like, one single criteria, and there's one single metric. And often, if we kind of move that world of computation to architecture, there can be a a huge risk in my mind of data and algorithms being used to produce an inevitable result of architecture and often a kind of bottom line efficiency. I sometimes call it like the cold blooded efficiency of, you know, one version of computation, but you know, like many good plot twists in the world, the same algorithms can be used to open up new possibilities. They can be used for creativity, for discovering unexpected results. And I think, you know, you and your practice do that and your book points that out. And so partly we're just trying to note that. And then partly if we go a level deeper, this idea of AI or artificial intelligence and algorithms and computation having what some recent writers have called like AI's white guy problem basically, to me, is a really good summary of the idea that the algorithms and the data have a lot of assumptions embedded in them. And sometimes they're not 
nefarious or evil assumptions. They're just biased. Yeah. yeah, like like all data, like and all algorithms, we could say. So trying to be aware of that, be aware of the white guy problem of of data, because you know one good example is there's a set of photos of human faces that some researchers created several years ago to try to do things like train a computer to recognize faces. It's particularly relevant now with this new technology for facial recognition on mobile phones and stuff. And so you can kind of see how this happened. It's almost like the snowflake story. Like yeah. there were just some people at a research university and they needed a data set and they gathered together the images of faces that they could find. And they happened to be faces basically of celebrities um, or famous people. It didn't necessarily mean celebrities because that was the data set they could gather of enough faces and they needed a few different images of each person so they couldn't just take random faces. They needed to know, you know who, who these faces were. And fast forward a couple of years and that became a standardized data set used for the benchmarking of many of these technologies. And so without anyone quite meaning to artificial intelligence, or this, at least this facial recognition version, developed a bias for the faces that are similar to faces that people could find on the internet, which tended to be famous faces. And so it produces these kind of um, self-perpetuating biases. And, uh, and so the last point that I was trying to make in that paragraph was that in contrast to computation, which has to, or tends to produce, you know, this one answer, this kind of efficiency, this problem solving. Biology offers this approach that a little bit counter to what people sometimes think of in, in biology of having natural selection and evolution of a kind of perfectly optimized system. Biology is very much due to chance, to random mutations that get perpetuated. And if it had been for a different random mutation, things could have been different. And on top of that, Biology is really not trying to produce any perfection of an individual. It's producing a diversity of a, a population, and that's you know how these kind of decisions get perpetuated. So those kind of concepts have been very much part of part of our thinking, and we started to right. kind of document them in the work. Maybe just one last comment. I know we're almost out of time, but maybe as a challenge to the you know multiple solutions. The making of a book imposes a kind of, like the making of a building, uh, like a striking finality, or at least, let's say, decisions uh, that one needs to commit to. And I think that's why architects uh, love making books, is because it, it's almost a kind of rehearsal for that. And I, um, I found this quote by uh, Cedric Price that I thought maybe we could talk about this um, this idea of, of being final uh, in a book, but Cedric Price said, it was actually an introduction to a, a lecture he was giving uh, at the AA, but he said, he said, you know, fax machines have provided architects with that final breakthrough for what they consider to be the ideal situation, and that is, if they're known to be drawing, then they need never make their minds up. And I, I you know, I think that the tools sometimes that we talk about using sometimes they're like, they're like this, they have this fax machine problem that they just allow us to maybe not make up our minds. And the, the amazing thing about the book is that it, it's making a book is quite literally making up your mind. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, th I think that's that's a good way to put it. And maybe that's one reason that, you know, that some of us, you know, I could just say that I'm interested in a book that it, it forces this kind of, not only this kind of reflection, but a, a decision. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's, things can no longer be so ambiguous or provisional because you have to decide what is going to go literally to print. I yeah. mean, that's, that's one very different thing than the digital medium. You have Absolutely. to decide what's going to print. Um, and and I, think that's, I think that's very valuable. And maybe it offers a little bit more of a, a, a kind of optimistic, operative idea for what a, a monograph can do or, you know, any kind of book that a firm is putting out that in addition to, you know, maybe being promotion, as some people have suggested, or like a kind of act of investment in oneself, as people have suggested, it can be this act of like forcing a, a decision. And I, I think that's a, that's a great way to look at it. I mean, good observation. Well, I'm really delighted right. to end on the, the fax machine. I think that's a great place to stop. And actually, and I think Jen Siegler has described that SML XL was actually produced largely by fax machines. So it also gave us the, the, the tome that marks a certain era of architecture books. Thank you so much, Ben. Thank you, David, for the conversation. This podcast was produced by Columbia GSAP in collaboration with ARC Daily. You can find more information about the school on our website at arc.columbia.edu.